listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, find out how older workers are now the fastest growing segment of the workforce in America, at least. Why is it happening? What impact is it having? And why it's a trend that's unlikely to slow, at least according to the experts, in the coming years. We take a tour of a record-pressing plant near Toronto to find out how the an industry that was written off just a few decades ago has made a healthy comeback, how they're adapting uh, to a new century with a bigger focus on sustainability. And from old tech to cutting edge, we get a preview. We're going to head to Las Vegas to get a preview of the annual CES, used to be called the Consumer Electronics Show, not anymore, CES, uh, the world's biggest tech show to find out what new gadgets, gizmos, and everything in between are on display this year. We speak to a former Boeing senior manager turned whistleblower, Ed Pearson, about the latest incident to call safety culture at the aircraft giant into question. Authorities in the U.S. are investigating after part of the fuselage of an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9 blew off not long after takeoff from Portland on Friday night. Luckily, no one was injured. The FAA has grounded all those planes while inspections are carried out. But first, the CEO of B'nai B'rith Canada joins me to talk about the rise in anti-Semitism seen in the wake of the events in Israel and Gaza over the past few months, and concern over the way protesters are targeting the country's Jewish community, questions why police aren't doing more to enforce existing laws to stop them. Let's start tonight, though, in Toronto, uh, where the police chief today issued an apology after one of the force's officers was filmed over the weekend handing coffee to a pro to a protester at a pro-Palestinian demonstration there. Chief Myron Demkew didn't specifically reference that incident in the statement, but said questions have been raised about a particular interaction on Saturday between officers and a person at the Avenue Road Bridge demonstration. That's sort of the 401, if you've ever been down the 401, that's kind of right in the middle of the city, nor- north of downtown, obviously, but right in the middle of the city. Uh, this video was circulated on social media. Uh, and the recurrent demonstrations at that location have been criticized by some, including city councillors and Jewish groups for its location in a neighborhood with a large Jewish population. And that wasn't all over the weekend. Protesters also descended on the mayor's annual skating party at downtown's Nathan Phillips Square, drowning out Olivia Chow. There are videos of altercations, or at least unaltercation, between some of those protesters and others who were just there for a skate. Have a listen to uh, what was up for Olivia Chow there this weekend. Right. Uh, Now, of course, protesters uh, are angry about what's going on in Gaza, where thousands of Palestinians have been killed. And of course, uh, there's still a lot of anger within within, uh, those who support Israel about the many killed on October the 7th as well, more than 1,200 people there, and uh, several, uh, more than 100 still being held hostage as we speak. So tensions are high, but you add it all up, and this lawyer, Muniz Sheikh, tells Global News that police need to be seen, seen to be doing more in this case. Where you, you know, start to encroach on someone's ability to just function on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, that starts to then toe the line in terms of, you know, what's proper and what's not, blocking traffic, you know, accosting people who are just simply trying to get by by pushing forward your position. That's where we do need to see our law enforcement. Well, joining me now is the CEO of B'nai B'rith Canada, Michael Mostyn. Michael, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, Ben. 
you know, this past weekend, again, uh, you know, we sort of exited 2023 with some serious concerns about what was happening. Not, not the protests themselves. I think we can all agree that Canadians are allowed to protest, but just how the protests were evolving. And this weekend mustn't have helped uh, anybody who was concerned about that. No, not at all. And and this has just been uh, something awful for the Jewish community in particular to have been dealing with. And now, uh, like Groundhog Day in some ways, we're dealing this again in 2024. And in fact, it's getting worse. The Jewish community very much feels targeted unfairly in acts of intimidation as part of these protests and sometimes where these protests are located. And that's not right. We should be a country that can, in a civil sort of a discourse, talk about ideas, talk about even different perceptions of reality. Uh, But nobody should feel intimidated uh, in their own home, in their own country. And unfortunately, more and more, that's the way many in the Jewish community are starting to feel. Yeah, tell me about that, because I think what we're seeing is, uh, you know, with protests on the overpass in Toronto, one of the busiest uh, overpasses in, in the country, really, on Avenue Road, is that this is specific targeting of the Jewish community. This has very little to do with it. I mean, I, I think the, the, the aim of the protest has to do with what's happening overseas, but this very much feels like individ- Jewish communities are being targeted individually for association, period. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that, that is certainly how the Jewish community feels. Is there a, a foreign embassy, the Israeli you know, consulate, by the way, uh, is that anywhere close by? Absolutely not. Is there any reason to, in particular, to target the 401 and Avenue Road, other than the fact that there's synagogues around the corner, many members of the Jewish community live in this neighborhood, there's Jewish-owned businesses in the area, other than things that are Jewish in character, there's nothing Israeli. There's nothing, there's no reason in particular that this particular intersection has become a focal point for anti-Israel protests, which, by the way, often enjoined by genocidal chants and um, and other nasty language. It just makes everyone who's living in that area feel very uncomfortable, targeted, and not being able to comprehend why are they being singled out and why are they being allowed uh, to be singled out more and more frequently and regularly. Tell me a bit about this incident over the weekend, because it's gotten a lot of uh, certainly got a lot of publicity where police officers with Toronto Police Service were seen to be providing sort of coffee and donuts to uh, to the protesters. I think there's a backstory around this. Uh, but today, the police chief came out and apologized for this, said there'll be a review that must have fed into some of the real concern within the community about how these protests are being policed as well. Absolutely, because yeah, pe- people in the community and, and by the way, I think Canadians more generally are are failing to understand how is it that these protests are allowed regularly when we all know you don't get a permit on a highway overpass? It just doesn't happen. So we know that this is being done without permission uh, of the state. And yet it seems to be targeted. We see genocidal chants. Uh, and that's clearly how it's being interpreted and perceived against the Jewish community. In fact, some of the language being used is about rats on some of that. And rats, of course, are an anti-Semitic a trope um, that has been used against Jews going back uh, all the way back into the Middle Ages, uh, because, of course, rats uh, carry disease and influence society in that sort of a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see these themes recurring over and over and over again. And even though there were many different intersections that were targeted over time, we now see more and more the focal point of these anti-Israel protesters really focusing on this one Jewish neighborhood. 
And everyone that I speak to is at a loss other than anti-Semitism. Why is this particular neighborhood being targeted over and over again by protesters? And why are these protests allowed to continue? And you must be hearing this story repeated in different ways across the country. Of course, on this show, we spoke with the MP Anthony Housefather not that long ago, uh, who's from a neighborhood nearby where I grew up in Montreal. And, you know, there's been incidents that were scary, scary incidents, whether it be the fire bombings or the bullet holes and so on. I mean, we've seen a level uh, in these. I mean, I I, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush here, but the bad actors within these groups seem to be doing things that would under any other circumstances, leave people really scratching their head. And I can imagine even now, do you feel like people are either listening or understanding or where, where's the gap here, do you think? It, it, it's, it's hard to express the frustration and where, where this gap might be. The police are clearly there to uh, protect all Canadians, uh, make sure that people uh, are able to express their opinions in our free and democratic society, but also ensure that everybody feels safe and nobody feels targeted because of who they are and how they identify. And yet we see these targeted activities in Jewish areas over and over and over again. We see escalation, uh, uh, just a uh, another Jewish business in the, in the Toronto area that was uh, apparently a firebomb of some sort. That's scary. And, but it's not surprising. Why would it be surprising that if you're one particular group who already was vilified, um, and, and already an inordinate amount of, of anti-Semitism. We know this from statistics. The Jewish community is, is regularly targeted disproportionately for all sorts of, of, of different crimes. Why is that to be allowed to continue this? And it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And, and very much people in the Jewish community consider this incitement as, as factors that lead to escalation. And when is it going to stop? What is going to be the turning point from political leaders, from police leadership? And and everyone's just kind of waiting for that next shoe to drop. And that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. What did you make of the apology today from the from the police chief? Is that enough? Well, quite frankly, I mean, there, there was an apology with respect to the perception of and I don't think it was specifically mentioned in this quote, but about, of course, the, the Tim Hortons incident where right. uh, coffee was being delivered, you know, to some of these protesters who, of course, shouldn't have been on this overpass in the first place and shouldn't have been uh, obstructing traffic and it made international news. So not surprising that an apology was made. I mean, it, I see it was in uh, the Israeli media. It was in American media. The British media. Uh, I actually saw British... it first on a tweet from the British media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so hugely embarrassing, I, w- I would suspect. And uh, there, there's actually going to be conversations later today mm-hmm. with some leadership from the Jewish community uh, in Toronto and the police uh, on this very thing. But w- w- where is this going? What is the pathway forward? That's not something that we read uh, in the chief's uh, response. And it's not something that is clear uh, to the community. Where do we go from here? How do we ensure that the Jewish community stops being targeted in ways that very much we believe to be driven often by anti-Semitism? We see and hear this commentary. We've heard genocidal slogans at many of these protests. And again, people are free to protest, but individuals who are targeted by those protests are also free to state this is wrong and this shouldn't be happening. 
And this is leading to escalation and nothing good is going to be coming of this. And and that's the way very much uh, the Jewish community feels. And I, I don't think that the police chief's response answers all of that, uh, all of those concerns. B'nai B'rith CEO Michael Mostyn is with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, the ongoing anti-Israel protests that have been taking place in many parts of the country, including some that have been cause for concern, obviously. These are protests that target Jewish communities, not necessarily businesses or anybody that has any involvement with what's happening overseas. This is purely targeting Jewish communities in this country. What needs to be done, do you think? I mean, reading between the lines, um, I get the sense that, that people want to see the law is enforced. I mean, my, Marco Mendicino, the former public safety minister, was out on Twitter over the weekend uh, saying that, you know, there are rules against this and they need to be enforced. And we need to make sure that while, you know, there is the liberty to protest in this country, that there is also the liberty to enforce the law in this country. And maybe we're not seeing enough of it. Uh, absolutely. And I think something that just regular, ordinary citizens that many of whom may happen to be Jewish, but many, of course, who aren't as well, are questioning themselves that, you know, how is it that elected officials uh, and, and well-meaning ones like like Marco Mendicino, for example, at the federal level, but you have the deputy mayor of Toronto speaking out against this, Mike Cole in his writing, you have provincial officials that are speaking out, officials at, at every level of this government, and everyone is is acting with frustration. Why is this being allowed to happen? But the ordinary citizen is saying, how is it possible that we have elected members of every level of government evoking their frustrations, uh, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse. The targeting of Jews is being allowed in this country right now, and that is an untenable situation. What would you like to tell the protesters? What, what would you say to them if you were given an opportunity? I know there's been a lot of yelling past each other in the past little while, but what would you like mm-hmm. to tell them about, about sort of where that line exists between, uh, you know, your right to protest and your right to be angry about things that are happening overseas and so on, uh, or even your own government's involvement or its own positions in it versus, you know, what we, what the perception of what we're seeing right now is? Yeah, well, uh, it's a great point. And if I was permitted to, uh, to talk and, and have a uh, sort of a back and forth conversation, uh, first of all, pointing out that not every, the world is not black and white, unfortunately. And anyone that believes the world is black and white is living in a fantasy world. Um, there is all sorts of shades of gray out there. And you can have your strong beliefs. But if your strong beliefs are getting in the way and making other people feel targeted, your fellow citizens, and we see and you're purposely trying to intimidate your fellow citizen because they have a different political view than you, you're going in the wrong direction. And that is what we're repeatedly seeing. Why does it have to be, for example, here, the targeting of the Jewish community, your fellow citizens who happen to be Jewish, it has absolutely nothing to do with Israel. Why is hateful language being used at the same time? Why are is it in being invoked um, various tropes against those individuals. Why are we hearing anti-Semitic commentary when it talks about Jews and Jewish-owned businesses? That's wrong. And and that shouldn't be, if, if you have a case to be made, make it. That's the wonderful thing about Canada. Nobody's making anybody believe what anybody else believes. Have your own opinion, but be respectful and be civil. But we see less and less civility. We see more and more as if I'm right and I'm on a certain position, I can do anything to achieve my positional goals. That is very anti-Canadian. We should be respectful of other people. We shouldn't be yelling and screaming and harassing older individuals, just as happened at Nathan Phillips Square over the weekend. People that were going about their own business, trying to go for a nice skate, 
and you have people walking along the ice and intimidating them. It's it's acts of intimidation like this that is completely unacceptable, un-Canadian, and cannot be allowed in this country. You cannot be allowed to intimidate other people, and that's the way that people are going to go about winning their argument. But that is what's been happening more and more. It cannot be normalized in this country. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let's let's go to this story because we were on air on Friday night when this had just happened. There was a really scary incident uh, over Portland on Friday evening. You may have seen it over the weekend. Um, an Alaska Airlines Boeing seven thirty seven Max nine lost a piece of its fuselage when it was you know some uh, it was but 16,000 feet in the air, 177 passengers and crew on board, and it just left this gaping hole in the plane. It was heading from Portland, Oregon to Ontario, California, some 1,600 kilometers away. Uh, It had to turn back and go back to Portland. There was a rapid decompression on the plane. Luckily, uh, no one was injured, but here is the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board's chair, uh, Jennifer Hammondy. It was described as chaos, uh, very loud, uh, between the air and um, everything going on uh, around them, and uh, and it was very violent uh, when the uh, rapid decompression and the door uh, was expelled out of the plane. Now, it turns out that it was a so-called bolt door used to cover an optional emergency exit. So if you were sitting on the plane, you wouldn't know that it was, in fact, a door. Now, luckily, no one, apparently no one was seated in that row, right? So this is one of the reasons that no one was injured, although there was some really scary moments on the flight. An Oregon teacher named Bob Sauer actually found the door uh, in his backyard on Sunday. Here he is explaining uh, what happened to a reporter from the Oregonian newspaper. Um, so I got around the corner and with my flashlight and the beam, there was something white underneath the trees where there shouldn't have been something white. So I went back to look at it and it was the missing piece from the airplane. It had the same curvature that the fuselage has um, and had a window in it. So I knew that's what it was. Yeah, so an important piece of this investigation, which is now back in the hands of investigators. Uh, The Federal Aviation Administration has grounded all Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft in that country. I think there are about 164 flown by Alaska Airlines and United Airlines. Um, No Canadian airlines operate this plane, by the way, but some have partnerships with those U.S. airlines that do. So that could have some impact on Canadian travelers who are traveling through the U.S. who are getting connecting flights. Uh, Here is a Canadian aviation expert, John Graddick from McGill University. If it's systemic across the Max 9 fleet, this could take a while. Overall, I think that, you know, people should be concerned about the Boeing culture and how Boeing is approaching the world of commercial aviation. Uh, You don't release an airplane uh, that might have a problem. Yeah, of course, this is another issue about that involving Boeing 737 MAX series. The MAX 8, you'll remember, was grounded for 20 months in 2019 and 2020, following the crashes of two of them in a matter of months, the first in Indonesia in October of 2018, followed by an Ethiopian Airlines crash in March of 2019. Uh, 346 people, including 18 Canadian citizens and permanent residents, lost their lives in those crashes. Boeing made some changes to the automated automated flight control system, rather, implicated in those, and they started flying again in late 2021, uh, in Canada at least. Well, joining me now with more on this is someone who really knows this issue well. Ed Pearson is founder of the Foundation for Aviation Safety. He's a former senior manager at the 737 factory uh, for Boeing. And Ed joins me now. Ed, thank you so much. Hey, thank you for inviting me. Nice to be here. 
Yeah, I, I thought of you right away when this happened because, of course, I followed a lot of what you'd had to say quite closely because there was a lot of Canadian interest with, with what happened with the Max 8 uh, a few years ago now. Just your initial reaction to what happened when you saw this news uh, or, or your initial reaction to the news when you saw it on Friday night. Well, Ben, um, initial reaction was, and you know, no surprise. I mean, and that's pretty sad to say that, but I know the rest of the world was shocked by it. But those of us that have been closely monitoring the Max for a while, you know, we weren't surprised at all. Why is that? Because as was pointed out, you you know, traditionally, you don't let an airplane go until it's until it's safe, right? And 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 I'm not quite sure. I don't think we know exactly what happened here. Uh, but it looks like um, it looks like not only was this an issue, but that uh, sort of initial inspections by both Alaska and United have turned up some fairly concerning stuff about some of the about about this this component of the of the aircraft. Uh, right. I, I actually got the same message just a little while ago about the Alaska um, inspections, but you're you're um, expert witness uh, on that was on the line just a moment ago, you know, was spot on target. Um, you know, you don't release an airplane that you even suspect might have a problem. And um, but what we've seen is, you know, a lot of these problems originate in the factory. And these have been um, there's been many, many production quality defects that have come to light since the plane re reentered service after the two crashes. So that's a that's a big concern. Um, and, you know, you just, you know, these airplanes are supposed to be designed to last 30 years. So flight crews are expecting them to be perfect. You know, they're expecting them to have um, the best engineering, the best testing, the best everything. And we're seeing airplanes um, in service that are having problems extremely early in their life. In, in some cases, you know, less than a couple hundred hours, they're having aircraft system malfunctions. So this particular incident, although definitely a rare event um is is really unfortunately we believe the tip of the iceberg tell me a bit about the bolt door because i don't think i'd actually ever heard of one i mean once they've been explained as sort of being uh included in the, in in the construction of the plane to allow for um to allow for another emergency exit if need be later and later on but i'd never actually heard of these things what do you think what, what's your suspicion about what might have happened here, or at least what is the bolt door used for? And have they ever been seen as being potentially an issue, an area of, of concern in the past? Well, I, I believe it's referred to as, as a plug door. Um, maybe maybe it's mm -hmm. a Canadian um, uh, language. I think it might be a plug door. Yes, apologies. Okay, yeah. You have me worried there because I've heard it as a plug door. Um, mm -hmm. So you're right. The plug door, that door is, is made available when we, um, when the uh, Boeing company builds airplanes that have more um, seating. So, for example, Ryanair in Ireland uh, has more seats. They kind of jam in the plane. And when they do that, they need an additional exit. So that is um, another exit on the plane. Um, but to passengers and to everybody else, you, you don't see it. It's it's like a hidden wall, right? There's inside their sidewalls, they call it, inside the plane, and you wouldn't know you wouldn't know that it was there, and it, even outside you wouldn't be able to tell it was there. It kind of just looks like a regular window. So, um, you know that thing when it, it comes to us, it, uh, it comes to the factory from Wichita, Kansas. The fuselage is is transported via train, and then it's supposed to come into the factory, and that's where it, it it's it's supposed to get you know a lot of inspections, and then it goes into production, um, and the plane is built. So. Very concerning. Um, we're so thankful that nobody got killed. You know, it could have been a completely different 
uh, situation if it was up higher. So literally minutes away, they were in the climb, as I understand. So, uh, yeah, that's that's concerning. And 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 again, for we you know we have a group of people that have been watching this closely in, uh, with the foundation, and and we've been very closely monitoring everything. In fact, we actually look at some Canadian airplanes just just so you know, I could share with you some of the things that we've seen there. Um, and uh, if you're interested, yeah, I could talk. Absolutely. To absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is one of those situations where I think um, after what happened in Indonesia and in Ethiopia, there was a huge amount of attention being paid to the safety of the, of the max line period. And of course you were directly, and you can talk about that too, because you were very much involved in, in, in a lot of what was being said then, I, I, you know, they've gone back into service. Uh, I don't think I've heard many people talk about them much since, but you've still been keeping a very close eye on the evolution of, of this particular line from Boeing. Right. Yes, because we felt very strongly that I felt very strongly that the, um, the issues that were exhibited on the planes that crashed were never thoroughly investigated. And so we were, you know, had eyes on it as soon as the plane went back into service so we've been closely monitoring it and in the united states um under title 14 the u.s code there is requirements to submit um safety reports um for aircraft system malfunctions and the u.s carriers that have uh, u.s certificated carriers have to submit these forms uh, excuse me these reports whenever they have a certain aircraft system malfunction and it, this is not something that's required in other countries, um, other countries with the exception of Canada. And I think uh, maybe one or two other countries, they don't require those types of reporting. And um, so we really have no idea what's happening, you know, you know, 800 plus airplanes overseas. Now in Canada, it just so happens, you also have what's called a service difficulty reporting system. And we've gone in and, you know, we haven't done a, a super deep analysis. So I just want you to know, we just did, you know, a, a few kind of cursory analysis, but what we did notice is that you've had some airplanes that are new max airplanes that went into um, uh, kind of maintenance checks, they call them. And you found some kind of concerning things on, on some of the planes. I mean, there's been reports of electrical bundles that have been, um, stretched over sharp edges, um, evidence of arcing and burning, burn marks. And we've seen this on a few planes. And, um, you know, having it on one plane is is one too many. So we're confident that, unfortunately, that you guys might have some other issues going on with your, your airplanes. Um, again, all this is, in my opinion, and the opinion of others that we, we are working with, that all this kind of ties back to the rush production operations in, in um at the factory. Right. Uh, yeah. I, was, I mean, tell me a bit about, I mean, I think I didn't, I went into your background a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, you worked very closely uh, on this for a very long time, not necessarily on this specific aircraft, but at Boeing for a very long time. And, and you and many others have pointed out where you think the problem lies, why we're seeing, I mean, this is a company that had a stellar reputation for a very, very long time. And suddenly this one series, and this is just the latest example, of course, but this, this certainly doesn't inspire an incident like the one in Portland on Friday night certainly doesn't inspire confidence. No. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the Boeing company is an amazing company. I, I try to say that every time I, I get interviewed, because I want people to realize that I am proud of the company. It's a, got an incredible history. I have family members that have worked for the company and, you know, it's, it's an incredibly important uh, part of our, our country in terms of uh, um, not only a commercial airplane, but also our defense. Um, so, 
when these kinds of things are happening, you're like, this doesn't make sense. This is not how the Boeing company was supposed to build airplanes. We're not supposed to be rushing like that. And you, you hear people talk about, you know, schedule, quality, and cost, and that you got to balance all three. Well, that's not really accurate. You really want the quality be the top, right? So you don't want your schedule to drive, you know, let's let's just get it done, move on, you know, move on, let's get it done. That's not how you want to build airplanes, right? And so this is what's happened when the culture at the senior levels. Um, by the way, if I forget, I just want to mention this. You have an author in Toronto uh, named Stephen Shedletsky. Uh, mm -hmm. He goes by the name Shed. He wrote a book um, called Speak Up Culture. Uh, you should have him as a guest, actually, if you haven't. But he wrote a book called Speak Up Culture. And it just so happens, um, first couple chapters have to do with Boeing. And he, he used that as an example where, you know, employees need to feel safe and, and it needs to feel like it's worth it to speak up. And if you don't provide that kind of environment, you know, I, I came out of the military, so I was I was used to kind of, you know, um, what I would consider, you know, very high standards environment. And I couldn't believe how we were talking to people, how some some senior executives would talk to employees and how they would, I hate to say it, but berate them in, in public at times. And it just becomes chilling. People don't want to talk. You know, people don't want to um, say that they have a problem. So any case, um, this is all a leadership issue in my mind. This is, you know, a leadership issue. They're sending the wrong message. They're, there's a lot of talk about safety. And, and unfortunately, it's not really materializing. Um, we have, since the max went into service, we've counted over 20 serious production quality defects that have surfaced. Um, you know, almost every couple months and the latest, we had the rudder issue. I don't know if you heard about it, but the rudder, they found uh, airplanes that had rudder with incomplete or uh, missing or loose bolts, you know, just before that they had issues with, um, misdrilled holes in the fuselage and the pressure bulkhead. We've had issues with, um, the, the up in the vertical fin, you know, the, the dagger fittings, they call it that hold the fin in place, they have cracks in it. And so I'm not trying to scare people because, you know, we all want to fly. We all need to fly. I'm just saying that, you know, we shouldn't be dealing with these kinds of problems and on a brand new on brand new planes and flight crews shouldn't have to be dealing with these kinds of problems. And, you know, passengers absolutely should not be dealing with these kinds of problems. And that's that's why I've been so vocal. That's why after, you know, I, I testified to Congress and ever since then, I, you know, it's like a baton. You can't put it down because, you know, it's not right. And so we've been able to rally many people that are that are helping us now because we really want the public to know what's going on. Pearson is with us this half hour, founder of the Foundation for Aviation Safety. He's a former senior manager at Boeing. We're talking about that scary incident over Portland on Friday night when a plug door, a part of the fuselage, blew off uh, an Air Max 9, an Alaska Airlines plane, as it was ascending on its way to Ontario, California. No one was hurt, luckily, but there was a decompression in the plane and managed to land safely back in Portland. Uh, Ed, can, can you make, I mean, there's been a lot of talk today about United and, and Alaska both finding some loose bolts in their initial sort of preliminary uh, inspections of these planes. What, what might that mean? I think it sounds scary to the layperson, but I'm not sure what it means to someone who actually knows. Well, I'm certainly not an expert on that part of the airplane, um, but I will tell you that um, loose bolts on anything on an airplane is not good. Um, no. So when we when we heard that 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 
you know, really makes you, you wonder what else is loose. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I, uh, you know, the, um, this is a, every part of an airplane is critical. And, you know, when you have something like that, it, it's certainly, especially on new planes, um, you know, that's really, really concerning. It's not uncommon and, and, and it's not, it shouldn't happen, but uh, sometimes if things are not properly uh, torqued down, you know, the vibrations um, can, can help loosen something up. Um, but I, I don't really want to speculate. I don't know enough about that. There's there's enough experts now that are pouring over it. I will tell you, though, to me, it's just one more example of a, a very serious uh, production defect. And in this case, it resulted in an explosive decompression. So we're just so thankful that it wasn't at altitude, you know, really high up there, you know, because the forces would have been much greater. And, um, you know, people may have yeah. been out of their seat. You've heard all that. So, um with I seven guess of the I ten, to... I gather. Yeah, sorry, there was. I, I don't know. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. I guess there was. There's other maxes in production, right? And I was reading some stuff that you on your website, uh, or at least articles that you were quoted in about uh, sort of attempts to kind of make sure that these planes get into into operation sooner than later, and so on. There's there's a lot of pressure on Boeing to get this to get this right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a huge market for airplanes, and Boeing is, you know, one of the two major um, aerospace manufacturers. Um, of course, China is building their airplanes as well. Um, you know, one thing I want to point out that is it actually was was new to, news to us, even though we're, you know, supposedly really dialed in on the industry. Um, a couple months ago, um, one of our um, board of advisors noticed that there was a couple petitions for exemption um, for flight related systems for the max. And, you know, we were like, what are you talking about? And he, and he showed us and sure enough, the Boeing company had made requests for exemptions for um, parts of the flight flight systems that do not comply with legally required engineering design safety standards. And I'm specifically talking about the stall management, y'all dampener computer and the flaps slats electronic actuator unit um the case of the stall management computer apparently it doesn't comply with lightning and high intensity radio frequency um type of uh situation and the case of the <clears throat> flaps slats uh, actuator unit it, it doesn't have uh, adequate backup and these are uh, engineering standards that are supposed to be complied with and we're just now finding out about this. I mean, how does that happen after you lose, you know, two planes and 346 lives and $20 billion loss to the company and criminal conduct? And you have all this and, and we're just now, you know, learning about these requests for engineering exemptions. Um, and it, it kind of came to a head the other last week um, during the holiday break. There was a request, another request that was submitted um for engine engine anti-icing de-icing excuse me engine anti-icing um system apparently that system um if left on for more than five minutes can actually result in a potentially a catastrophic failure of the inlet and and, and the catastrophic well, and, and i hate problem. i hate to stop here I, 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 we've run out of time but as always thank you so much for your insight on this you know so much about this so thank you for sharing the info with us tonight i appreciate it yes sure no problem um Thanks for having me.
let's move into the future. It's called the most powerful tech event in the world. The annual CES officially kicks off tomorrow in Las Vegas, the Consumer Electronics Show, as it was once known ages ago. Um, but there were lots of press conferences today to give everyone or to whet everyone's appetite about what is about to come. It's where the tech industry rings in the new year. It usually features a ton of cutting-edge stuff. It's a bit like a really big museum. You don't get a chance to see all of it, no matter how you tried. Here's Gary Shapiro. He's president of the Consumer Trade Association, producers of CES. This is big, and, and it's definitely even bigger than last year. We have uh, have double-digit growth. We're up to about over 3,500 exhibitors, and there'll be, believe it or not, in about 2.4 million net square feet of exhibit space across these facilities. And that is uh, a couple of dozen football fields worth of space. No one can see the whole show. We expect to attract about 130,000 people uh, from around the world, and over one out of three of those people will be from outside the United States. Well, one of those 130,000 people and one of those third who's from outside of the United States uh, is Mike Agarbo. He's the host of Get Connected, uh, and he is in Las Vegas tonight uh, getting a taste of CES and uh, getting ready for tomorrow. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, it always sounds, I mean, just describe that way to, you know, to a a couple of dozen football fields, 130,000 people. I can't quite picture. I mean, I've been in Vegas before, but never for this. It must be just huge and packed and busy. Yeah, it's kind of insane. You know, 130,000 nerds kind of all combined in one space. That's that's a lot. But, yeah, these convention centers are just, like, huge caverns. Like, even one in itself is just mind-boggling. And the fact that's in, you know, multiple of uh, these types of uh, convention centers, it, it just kind of boggles the imagination. And there's just so much to cover. As, you know, a journalist, we actually fly in, you know, a couple days early before the show even starts to attend all the pre-shows just so that we can get enough time to kind of make sense and cover some of the major trends that uh, are, are happening. And so it's just amazing the amount of money that some of these big manufacturers spend just even on the pre-shows to, to kind of get ahead of the game. How do you how do you go about uh, then make, making your plan? Because I, I suppose you'd have to have a plan to, to be able to cover what you want to cover and to be able to see the things that you want to see. Because as was mentioned, uh, you just can't see it all. Well, exactly. So, I mean, the plan is, it's kind of simple. Uh, you know, the big guys like the Samsungs and the LGs, they actually have these uh, pre-shows where they've got a lot of... Uh, uh, the gear that they want to kind of show off during the show, uh, you know, as a preview for journalists to come in before and actually check out and, you know, get some uh, alone time uh, with it so that we're not kind of crushed on the uh, the show floor. And CES also has something uh, called CES Unveiled, which is a, uh, a pre-show in one of the big uh, ballrooms in Mandalay Bay where they have, uh, you know, a few hundred uh, exhibitors just on simple tables kind of showing off some of the the most innovative stuff uh, that uh, you know we're potentially seeing uh, in the program so that way we can start uh, you know filing uh, some of the stories and getting it uh, getting it ready for what we're doing so I, I, what are some of the cool things that you've seen? I saw someone, a journalist with Wired, wrote that uh, this year's, the theme of this year's CES is things that are also other things. That's what he, how he described it. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, yeah, like I saw this uh, Eureka uh, washing machine. You know, we're familiar with the brand Eureka. So they have this washing machine, and at the bottom of this washing machine, there's like this little uh, robot vacuum. So it kind of lives underneath the, the washer. And so I guess it's the idea is that it's supposed to free up uh, up space, which, you know, I kind of I get. 
Uh, and another really cool thing uh, I saw from uh, D-Bot, they're kind of like the big competitor to uh, iRobot and the Roombas. They've got their own uh, vacuum, and now it's got a built-in uh, mopping feature as well. It goes back to a, you know, a cleaning station where it can you know, get new water, empty the dirty water. But there's also kind of a, a, a stick attachment as well, because that's one of the things I've, I've found. You know, I've got these Roombas roaming around my house, but I still have to have like a, a Dyson stick vacuum as well i don't know why uh but now this thing here kind of integrates all of it uh, into one i like this idea of the eureka one with the robot that you know the, the robot vacuum beneath it because it, it, it doesn't just come out and do the lint dryer then the lint uh, trap and then go back in right that's not it's uh, <laughs> not it's all imagine that I w- I wish, but it's interesting I wish, yeah. it would em- I wish it would empty that lint trap no kidding. But it's interesting just to see, and I think it's a reflection of the kind of space that people now call home, uh, that you have these new devices that are kind of built to be compact and ever more sort of uh, ever more compact in, in this case. Very much so. And, you know, Samsung, uh, they didn't disappoint. They had some really interesting technology and even LG as well. Um, I don't know when we're going to see this or if it's going to be a thing. Uh, you know, we've seen these uh, displays in uh, science fiction movies like Minority Report, transparent, you know, kind of uh, displays. You can see through them, but there's images coming up. Uh, Samsung showed off some really cool uh, ones with micro LED. And LG showed off and announced, uh, you know, a, a huge transparent uh, 4K wireless uh, TV. It was just amazing just to kind of see uh, how that all works. So you can see through the TV, but they can have all sorts of images, like an aquarium, for example. Uh, so I think it's going to add a whole other dimension to how we use these displays in our homes and, and even businesses and retail. I was I was looking through some of the stuff that was on uh, being talked about for, at CES, and it's amazing how much the world of screens i mean to use the non-scientific term how much the world of screens has progressed i mean from gaming screens to i mean it was just amazing the kinds of things that are now out there and i don't know how many of them are available and as you mentioned the transparent ones aren't aren't available yet but just the innovation that's going on around the kinds of screens you can use whether it be for gaming or home entertainment whatever uh it's fascinating to watch it is and it's fascinating the the size of screens now as as well like that's been the big story always with the consumer electronics shows. You know, the TV manufacturers are always trying to outdo each other and kind of find the next uh, revenue source for them. Now, now it's like the giant TVs. You know, we've seen 75, you know, 85, 90-inch. Now, you know, they're getting into like 109-inch TVs. And there's a whole thing in actually, you know, getting these delivered into people's homes that they actually have to account for now. Will it actually fit in the p- people's home? And... Uh, they actually have to, you know, have really specific instructions or uh, kind of uh, concierge service to help them unpack these big TVs so they don't bust them when they, they when they do that. Yeah, it'll be like printing presses. They'll have to build the house on top and put the TV in first and put the roof on top <laughs> afterwards. 109 inches, that's a large, large television. Wow. Um, anything? I mean, you sent me a long list of things that you found really interesting uh, this time around. But I know, like, I think Apple was out today. They're all, they were all out, sort of announcing the big things. Anything else sort of stand out to you? Uh, yeah, there's the LG. I haven't seen it yet. I've, I've uh, well, I've, I've read about it. Uh, LG's got a new robot companion that'll follow you around the home. I don't know if that's a thing yet for people or not. Uh, also, Samsung, uh, they've kind of uh, improved their uh, Bali. Uh, this is like a little yes. robot ball that follows you around the house. Uh, it can also interact with other connected devices, like turning switches on and off. I, 
God knows how it's going to do that. Uh, but it's also got a built-in projector, so it can project images and videos on the floor and even on the walls uh, as well. So I don't know if we're ready for these little balls and robots to be following us around the, the home, uh, but it, it's kind of an interesting trend. Yeah, I saw the Bali. I, I just saw like a uh, sort of pictures of it and thought, I, I guess it now has some AI powered stuff and so on. And yeah, it's, it, it said it can follow you around the house unless you go upstairs. And I thought, well, why do you want a ball following you around the house? But I, I guess it has its, it must have its uses, right? It must have its uses. How do they market it? I mean, how do they suggest that it's something you may need? I don't know. I think it's just kind of a, a way to show off technology. Remember when Sony had the little right. uh, Ibo robot dog? Uh, I, you yes. know, how many did they sell, right? I, I think it's just kind of more, you know, kind of a fun thing they can show off how good they are with uh, technology, uh, essentially. Big story, though, in healthcare as well. And I'm just trying to dig into that here at the show. Uh, there are so many companies with all sorts of new types of AI health technology uh, that, you know, they're trying to incorporate into apps and different kind of monitoring devices. I saw this really cool uh, DNA testing company. Uh, they've been around for a couple of years now, I think out of Taiwan, but uh, you can uh, get one of their DNA tests and, you know, swab your cheek and send it in and they can send you back results to let you know if you genetically uh, have things like ADHD. Uh, and the newest one can actually tell you if you're predisposed to uh, obesity as well from a, a number of different factors. So uh, I took the swab, so I'm going to find out what's wrong with me. Uh, obviously many things, uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll, uh, I'll be sharing those results in a few weeks. Talking tech this half hour, uh, the tech show, CES, the biggest tech show in the world, the kickoff to the new year, set the stage for 2024. Mike Agarbo is there in Las Vegas. He's been there today. Of course, there's uh, for people who are down there covering it, there are some, there's a couple of days preview, including today. There are a bunch of uh, bunch of press conferences going on. I was watching Sony's uh, live, live streamed a little earlier. Uh, Mike, I, I gather car companies usually make a big splash of these things. I don't know how much you cover the car stuff, but apparently this year they're not going to be there. There's been, because of strike issues and so on, uh, there's a slightly lower profile from the car, from the vehicle folks at uh, CES this time around. Yeah, they're still here. Uh, they're kind of doing a lot of stuff off-site, uh, which a lot of these companies do to uh, save uh, actually a tremendous amount of uh, money. Uh, you know, like Mercedes and a lot of the other big guys, uh, you know, are showing off some of the latest innovations with their, you know, especially in their electro uh, electric vehicles, uh, you know, their infotainment systems are using, and a lot of other kind of suppliers as well that are trying to, you know, uh, get in on this new, uh, I guess, electric revolution that's happening. Uh, Bosch is showing off, uh, you know, this special uh, robotic arm that can uh, automatically uh, put the, the plug into your EV, I guess, in your garage. You know, uh, Tesla, you know, again, not here, but, uh, you know, they've been uh, talking about doing wireless charging now for their Teslas uh, in the future uh, as well. So we're going to see a lot of that. And also, uh, you know, a lot of companies now that are making these kind of reverse charging boxes uh, that would allow you to, uh, you know, power your home in case of a, uh, you know, a power outage. And we saw a few of those over the past few years. There's a lot of those coming now as well. Yeah, I mean, what it always feels like sort of last year. I think we talked a lot about sort of health and tech was the, was the big thing last year. What, what do you feel like? What do you feel like things are going this year at, at CES in terms of some of the kind of themes of the week? Everyone's trying to jam AI into their product name. <laughs> some, right, somehow, yes, I noticed so, that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's incredible. Everything is AI. Like it just kind of got invented yesterday. Uh, but, you know, obviously that's a big word, and they think that that's what everyone's going to kind of glom onto right now. Uh, I, I can see it, you know, in health and especially in monitoring, uh, you know, that's a, a big thing. 
and and uh, you know the the tech manufacturers, the Samsungs and uh, and the LGs are saying that you know they've got 8K TVs now, and you know as journalists we're like, there's no 8K content, <laughs> and I, you know we don't no. see a lot of it on the on the horizon, right? Because you know all the broadcasters and uh, you know filmmakers and stuff, uh, you know they've already made huge investments into you know 4K technology, and I just don't know if there's a huge appetite to jump to 8K. But what what they're basically saying is, you know, using AI, uh, you know, they can upscale any content, no matter how you know cruddy it is, uh, essentially. So you can put YouTube videos up on the screen, and using AI enhanced. Uh, algorithms it'll upscale it to 8k i saw some examples obviously they were examples that they had had created but um, it looked pretty good so we'll just have to see how that works in 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 real in the real world as someone who who regularly misplaces his keys i was interested you mentioned something called lockley's uh visage door lock recognizer or or face facial recognition to unlock your door that one seemed pretty cool that's that one seemed pretty cool yeah, that's kind of the exciting thing, you know, with a lot of this connected technology. It is getting easier, and it's actually uh, getting to a point where these things actually will start talking to each other. You know, the, the lock you're talking about, I've, I've tried a few smart locks on, on my home, uh, but I love this one because it's got this uh, special built-in camera. It's not taking video of people coming to your door. It's essentially uh, looking at your face for facial recognition. So as you approach the door, and obviously if you've entered your face in as someone who is <laughs> worthy enough to unlock the door, it'll recognize that and unlock it, which is kind of a cool thing. And apparently it has a keypad, too, for all the other common people that uh, you know you might not want to give full access to. Yeah. So what's what's on the schedule for tomorrow? How does day one look when when they open up the floor? Do you just sort of do you have a, do you have a whole map all drawn out and you know where, where you want to be at a certain time because it's huge, right? It's interesting, uh, Ben, because uh, you know the big guys like the Samsung, Sony's, LG's, their booths are always in the same place every year, which is great because you can right. make a plan. Uh, and, and you can even make appointments to get booth tours and, and what have you. And these booths, like, I don't think people can comprehend. They are giant, and they are packed with thousands of, uh, of people. So you kind of make a plan to hit all those. And uh, my favorite place, though, is in the Venetian uh, Exposition Center. They've got something called Eureka Park, and this is where all these crazy new startups are that have all sorts of crazy new inventions, and you kind of really see some uh, innovative uh, things uh, with, with that. Uh, but also, I'll be using the you know the uh, the Vegas Loop. It's that Tesla tunnel with all the little Tesla vehicles going between right. the different uh, conference halls. Uh, I don't know how much of a difference that makes really in time, but it's fun to jump down there underground for a while and and zoom off to the next conference center. Well, Mike, uh, have a great time. We'll be watching for your reports as always, and uh, and for the show too. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing some of the things you stumble upon because I know, like everything in journalism, you sort of have an idea of what you think you're going to see, and then you end up seeing completely different stuff half the time, right? So it should be should be fascinating. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've only scratched one percent of the surface, so you know, the next few days, I'm going to be, you know, my brain is going to be blown. So I'm excited. <laughs> Good enough, Mike. Have a great time. Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate. It. I know how busy you are. Thanks, Ben. Ah, the record store. Full of the greatest albums of all time and the employees who hate every one of them. Do you have the Eagles' greatest hits? Yeah, it's under O for obvious. And overrated. Yes, the Family Guy's trip to the record store. It goes on from there. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know that I spent... 
a lot of my younger days digging through crates of LPs. It was something I used to do with my dad when I was a kid and then continued to do it. Secondhand record stores obviously were my favorite, but I spent a lot of time lining up on Boxing Day at Sam the Record Man or A&A or wherever I may be uh, over the years. So I, I amassed quite a record collection. My dad had a massive record collection. He actually just sold it not long ago because they were just they, they were selling a place and they didn't have the storage anymore. So my dad sold off most of it. Uh, and mine's been sitting in storage. What's left of it has been sitting in storage for quite a while. We just don't have residences that are built for record collections the way we used to, right? Uh, but what's been really heartening, because there was a time, I mean, I remember going to secondhand record stores in the 90s when you could buy just about anything you wanted for very little money. I mean, there was almost no interest in vinyl anymore. People were buying CDs, replacing their whole collections with CDs, and just dumping vinyl as fast as they could. It really looked like it was going to be relegated to the dustbin or the landfill of history, uh, if you will. And then something kind of awesome has happened in the past little while. And I noticed it a bit when I was living in Britain, uh, but you know, in the, in, over the last decade, they started to make a comeback. Vinyl started to make a comeback. And it was especially kids who liked it. I guess in the age of digital downloads and streaming and all that stuff, music lovers uh, seem to have chosen vinyl as the best way to pay tribute to the artists that they love, right? Um, you know, there's something beautiful about about albums, the cover art, the record itself, the way you pull it out and you look at it. There's just It's a lot more of a tactile experience than a ca cassette or even a CD, right? Now, CDs did a decent job, uh, I think, but I mean, it, nothing compares to one of those sort of double albums that you'd unfold or, you know, I remember my dad had the Andy Warhol uh, version of Sticky Fingers, the uh, the Stones album. Of course, I used to try to break the zipper that was on it, but as a child, that is. Um, but just just how cool album covers were, uh, even plain ones, right? And you, you really get much more of a sense of the band. Um, I was reading something interesting that a, a significant proportion of people who buy vinyl these days don't even own record players. They don't buy them to play them. They buy them to sort of have them, to have the cover, to have the art, to to sort of show solidarity with the artists that they like. So add that all up, and in 2022, vinyl actually outsold CDs in the U.S. for the first time since 1987, with over 41 million records sold. A lot of that has to do with the fact that no one's buying CDs anymore. Uh, but still, 41 million records is pretty substantial for a year. Uh, I think some artists used to sell that in a year, but that's uh, pretty good. A lot of it has been down to Taylor Swift, to be honest. I think she was responsible for about half that that growth. Um, Taylor, she's released all kinds of music in all kinds of different formats and different colored vinyl and so on. Of course, big Taylor Swift fans are, are eager to run out and buy as many of them as they can. Um, so that's kind of driven up uh, vinyl sales as well. But a lot of new artists or a lot of new artists are see releasing something on vinyl as kind of uh, an important part of any release these days. And, you know, uh, Older artists are releasing new collections of older material uh, on LP as well. So it seemed on, on LP as well. So vinyl has become something of a must. But like all things, what's old is never quite new again in the same way. So as records have made a comeback alongside a record pressing industry to support it, technology has been changing things up a bit, although it's pretty much the same procedure in pressing a record as it's always been. But there are also expectations around things uh, such as sustainability. Turns out artists, artists and fans alike want to know more about what records do to the environment. Uh, for about 75 years now, I think they've been made with 
polyvinyl chloride or PVC. It's a petroleum product. And so when they wind up in a landfill, even in a history's landfill, they don't decompose. Um, so there's some pressure on that side as well. So we thought we'd head to a record pressing plant to find out not only if business is sustainable, but just how sustainable their business is. Paul Miller is Vice President of Sales at Precision Record Pressing in Toronto, and he joins me now. Paul, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much. Yeah. This is good to be here. Yeah, vinyl to me has always, you know, from a very young age, when I was convinced there was a band pressed into that vinyl, um, I was I've always been mystified by how it works. But it's been such an it's been so refreshing to see it come back. What's it been like uh, on your end to watch the resurgence of vinyl sales? Well, I think there's a lot of people out there who feel like there's a dark art behind vinyl, you know, which is how do you get the music on its disc? It feels antiquated. It seems mysterious to a lot of people, but really beautiful at the same time. It's a very classic format. And so I think a lot of people have been excited about seeing it come back because of that reason, you know? It it has such a sort of cultural cachet to it. It has such, um, I don't know, like a tactile sort of quality. And anyway, we've been really excited to watch the rise of it. And, uh, you know, um, it's really been a roller coaster. The industry has gone through a lot of changes in the last 20 years. Yeah, no kidding. I, I was interested to see that that not a huge, not a majority, but a significant proportion of, of younger people who buy vinyl these days don't own record players. They just buy it for the beauty of it. So it's about the cover art. It's about the vinyl itself, which comes in all different. As I was watching your a promo video, comes in all uh, different kinds of colors these days. I mean, it, it they are much more artistic than than they are utilitarian, as they may have been, you know, twenty thirty years ago. You know, at a recent vinyl conference that took place in the UK that a colleague was telling me about, um, it's it's um, it's said that the fastest growing demographic for vinyl record sales is people under 25, which is wow. really heartening because it shows that there's still room for the floor to be raised, right? And we've seen quite a lot of growth. And it's also true that there's quite a few people who buy vinyl records where they don't own a turntable. And actually a statistic that came out in 2022 was that approximately 50% of people who bought a record in that year don't own a turntable. I mean, you know, to us, that makes us go further into the direction of coming up with, you know, really beautiful designs and the vinyl itself. You know, we have about 50 colors and lots of different effects. And you're right, you know, the enjoyment of vinyl, I think, has evolved. And now people sort of see it as like, um, like an artistic object as well as one to use for audio enjoyment. Yeah, and, and not just throwing big piles of them on the floor at Sam the Record Man or A&A, but actually treasuring them. What's it like these days in terms of uh, who you deal with, how long it takes to turn uh, something around, get it onto vinyl? What's what's that like these days and how much competition is there out there? Because I, I suspect there aren't a lot of you. There's approximately five or six plants in Canada. There's quite a few now in the United States, maybe about between 40 to 50 perhaps. Oh, wow, that's so a lot. It's changed a lot, yeah. I mean- you did not see those numbers 10 years ago. It might've been about half really. So a lot of new players have gotten in the game. Um, you know, for us, we have 35 record presses. We're a big plant. That's allowed us to drive the turnarounds down to uh, eight weeks. We have a new program that's for 100, 200 and 300 runs. We call Express and that's six weeks. And, uh, you know, they're also for a really affordable price, too. So we're really talking about that because, you know, that demographic that's between, you know, 16 to 25 who's buying a lot of vinyl. Those people want to make vinyl, too. So we have this program that is really designed to encourage a lot of new people getting in the game. So, yeah, vinyl takes about eight weeks these days. And, um, uh, yeah, we're just really working hard to push that turnaround as fast as possible. we got that six week thing. And can we get to four? We'll see. 
How does it work now between, how is it different now with technology than it was, say, if you were buying a, a record in 1978 compared to today? What, what is the, the difference in how that record is made? You know, the core technology hasn't changed all that much. Mm -hmm. You know, it's still hydraulics and steam. Uh, the, the design of the record press hasn't changed that much, but it really feels like a lot has changed because since the mid 80s, you know, that's when the last record press was, uh, had, had been uh, manufactured and available and made available to the public. Um, so there was a real drop off. You couldn't get a new record press you know, from let's say 83 or 85 on until about 2015 when new record presses were being made again. So there's lots of, I would say, innovation that's gone into the, um, well, the resurgence on the equipment side to um, extend the life of the industry going into this new era, right? Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, but for, we also have a print shop and the, the machine that we're using to make record jackets is uh, a record jacket manufacturing machine from 1978, you know, so oh, we wow. still have this blend of like, you know, equipment that was used to make Beatles records in the 70s, you know, as well as brand new record presses that were made, you know, as late as like last year that we're using in our final manufacturing shop. I, I guess that mixture of old and new makes perfect sense, right? Because I mean, I mean, it's a bit like they're a bit like instruments, right? Sometimes the older ones are actually better and you can't recreate them. No, it's true. Yeah. Some of those old instruments, they have a sound and a feel, you know, um, and on the manufacturing side, I mean, you know, we're not going for feel, we're going for efficiency. So we find the new equipment is the better equipment, <laughs> but it's kind of cool that we have that original 1978 Winkler record jacket manufacturing machine in the shop too. It shows that we're carrying the history forward. I realize that not every artist these days is releasing vinyl. Who, who, where are you getting a lot of the demand from uh, to put out vinyl records? I mean, I, I read somewhere last year that, you know, Taylor Swift alone was responsible for a lot of what we what we were reporting as that huge resurgence, or at least, you know, vinyl sales surpassing CD sales for the first time in a long time. Uh, but but is it is it right across the spectrum in, with this interest in in releasing on vinyl these days? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Taylor Swift is the vinyl juggernaut of our lifetime. It's yes. really sort of an unexpected turn, you know, because I remember making vinyl in the early 2000s when you would think this band has a vinyl audience, this band doesn't. That doesn't exist anymore. It's totally across the spectrum. I mean, on the major label side, you know, we've done and do records for, you know, Billie Eilish, Taylor Swift, Drake, you know, all like, it seems like every big artist now has vinyl as part of their rollout. It might not be the biggest thing that's their largest focus, but um, it feels like it's always there, which is great. And then on the independent side, you know, there's a long history of, you know, hip hop on vinyl, of punk on vinyl, and that stuff still exists too. So we think of the business like with sort of two interlocking parts, you know, on the sales side, one for the indies, one for the majors, right? Um, as far as those, the, those categories. But within the indies, it's so vast. I mean, really every genre is represented on vinyl these days, which, yeah, I don't think you really saw that. 15, 20 years ago. Paul Miller is with us, Vice President of Sales at Precision Record Pressing uh, in Toronto. Uh, the name says it all. They make, they press records. Uh, for a while, it felt like this was going to be a fast-fading art, and it has resurged. It has come back, of course. Uh, we've talked about this on the show in the past little while, that, that vinyl sales are way up. Lots of artists are uh, are wanting to release their products on vinyl. There's a lot of demand for it as well. Uh, and, and, Paul, I was reading, of course, that um, you know, you, you can't quite, we, we don't look at vinyl the way we did 50 years ago either, that there is this idea from the artists as well about the environmental impact of it. They don't want it all ending up in landfills. And you've had to kind of uh, adapt to the times as well. 
Yeah, we recently introduced a new product called EcoMix. It's made up of 100% recycled vinyl material, but the artist or record label still has the option of choosing a color shade. There's six different ones. So, you know, it can still fit into the aesthetic vision of the album while also being a more environmentally conscious product. Um, of course, we've been really driven to think about this because, as you point out, we're using polyvinyl chloride. You know, that's a petroleum product. And so it's on our mind. We hired an environmental engineer last year to join our team, and that person is responsible for calculating our carbon footprint, coming up with waste reduction initiatives, and just generally to make the plant and the product more environmentally friendly. We have our eye on alternatives to PVC. The industry, as far as the uh, the compound manufacturers go, uh, there's, it seems like there's still some development to go. Because the thing is, we, what we really want is to have an environmentally sustainable product that still sounds great because mm -hmm. people turn to vinyl records for a particular audio quality experience. So, you know, we've got some distance to go before the alternatives sound as good as PVC, but we're getting closer and we're really keeping our eye on that. Yeah. How long has it been? Because I'm trying to think back. Obviously, I remember my grandparents' 78s and so on that were made on what felt like, I, I felt like stone, but I think, was, I don't know what it was exactly. How long have we been making records the same way? I actually don't know because <laughs> I know that shellac. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, sh shellac was used, you know, all those old records that are, you know, like, they have that weight, you know, yeah. um, that was sort of the common thing. And um, when was PVC first used for vinyl records? I got to go back and read my I didn't mean, I, I'm sorry to stump you on that. I, no, there are no trick questions <laughs> as, as a rule. Uh, but it's interesting. And, and again, I was reading that, that there are alternatives out there that are being worked on, but they just don't sound right yet. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, um, the, the, the thing that a lot of these compound manufacturers are focusing on is um, um, biodegradable materials. Mm -hmm. um, and that holds a good amount of interest for us as well. Um, but as you mentioned, yeah, you know, um, there's still a lot of testing going on to try and see if the audio quality can be improved. Um, there's quite a few companies now out there who are experimenting with this. And it's starting to seep into the sort of like, um, uh, you know, standard goals that vinyl record plants have to attain some PVC alternatives that sound quite as good. But it feels like we're, you know, still on the way there. It might be a couple of years yet. Yeah, I, I was interested to see all the colors you have on offer because back in the day, I mean, of course, you know, 98% of the records I owned were black vinyl. They, you know, every once in a while, artists would put out sort of colored vinyl things and they were they were more expensive. My father always used to always say they didn't sound as good and he's a real vinyl junkie. Is that is that still the case or is is it pretty, has that all that technology been ironed out over the years? No, there's still a difference. I mean, whether it's, 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 it's intensely noticeable is... Um, I would say maybe a bit overplayed. You know, black vinyl, it does sound the best. That's something that is fairly recognized across the industry. When you start getting into colors, there's a minor increase in surface noise, the pops and ticks that people typically associate with vinyl record pressing. Then there are some other effects you can get into where it's a bit more increased. But, you know, I would say that on a whole, it's not something that a lot of people find very distracting to listen to, especially when they're, you know, buying the record um, you know, for the visuals as well, right? Yeah, as we were mentioning earlier, a lot of people who buy records now don't actually own turntables, so they really are looking for that for that artistic experience. Where do you see this all going? I mean, it's been really interesting to see records reappear at, say, the local drugstore that sells music, right? It's been fascinating to see it. Do you see that uh, continuing? Do we feel like this is sort of uh, the return, that vinyl will have its niche now for the foreseeable future? 
Yeah, it feels pretty entrenched as far as being one of the formats of music that people reach for. You know, that and streaming seems like the future. And um, the popularity of vinyl, I think, is also evident in, you know, the examples that you laid out where you have the, even the bigger box stores like Walmart um, have also gotten back into vinyl in the last couple of years. And it's successful for them. So we see more variants. Um, and variant is our term for like a, you know, specific colorway, right? So mm -hmm. you might have like three or four variants of a record, you know, one black, one yellow, one green. And so we're starting to see more variants go to places like Amazon and Walmart. It just really feels like, you know, it's not a niche anymore and that it's here to stay in the mainstream. Yeah, the only thing for someone for for a Gen Xer like myself, the only thing I've had to get used to is the price tag because you know I remember paying like eight eight ninety nine for an album, and now it's like forty nine ninety nine or thirty nine ninety nine. I guess that's not going to change. Well, that is a concern, right? Because you don't want people to get price fatigued. You know, especially if people aren't always buying them to listen to them, and therefore they might not come back to them as often as you know a possession that they have in their collection. Um, really, needs to be priced priced properly as well. I mean, properly, of course, is a subjective term, but, you know, we really saw a lot of increases to the raw materials uh, mm -hmm. spike over the pandemic. And I think there's a bit of a hangover and having that stuff go back down again. You know, I mean, inflation is cooling now. A lot of the logistical issues we experienced over the pandemic that rose prices of materials has also been resolved. We lowered our prices last year uh, in 2023. Um, we reduced our vinyl price by 15 cents a unit. Um, oh, wow. and yeah, so, so it went down from a dollar 75 to a dollar 60. Um, and, uh, you know, we have plans to reduce our print prices this year. So we're trying to get ahead of that and hopefully the record labels react in turn. Um, and that can make some difference at the cash register. Yeah, and, and and for listeners, I reckon if you go to Precision Record Pressing's website, they actually tell you how many records they pressed this week. And I was it was up around two hundred twenty-two thousand one hundred sixty last I looked. It's a great, great looking counter. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great conversation. We're going to touch on a subject that I think is really interesting uh, this half hour. This is something that we talked about quite a bit when the Cullen Report in BC that looked into sort of money laundering and casinos um, in British Columbia released, uh, Austin Cullen released his final report, I guess it must have been about a year and a half ago. And of course, Sam Cooper used to do a lot of work on this and still does a lot of work on this stuff. And uh, it's the topic of a new and really extensive book that was co-edited um, by Jamie Farrell, uh, who is a Canadian who now teaches and works in Australia, and by Christian Luprecht, who you've heard on the show uh, quite often. He is uh, at Queen's University and Royal Military uh, College and an expert in all kinds of stuff, including uh, you know international affairs and uh, stuff such as money laundering and borders. Um, the book sort of theme is that there's a vast financial underworld operating in this country whose members commit fraud and other financial crimes without punishment, corroding communities, undermining democratic institutions, and even the country's prosperity. Uh, that's what is is this book posits. Um, it is many chapters, many different experts have been brought in to talk about different aspects of this, where it comes from, what the models are, who's doing it, why, how they get away with it, uh, the law enforcement side of it or lack thereof, uh, and why there is a reluctance or that there is an, uh, an incapability at times amongst government to do more to curb this. Um, and the book goes posits that it's because elected leaders at all levels are enabling and emboldening financial criminals by failing to fight them or even hamper their efforts. Uh, Jamie Farrell, I believe, is with us now. I think so. Uh, 
she spent eight years with Canada Border Services or the Canada Border Services Agency, CBSA. Uh, she's now a financial crime instructor with the Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security at Charles Stewart University in Canberra in Australia. And she will be with us uh, in just a sec. I'll let you know as soon as she is. But yeah, it's it's been it's interesting to think of when, when they called it the Vancouver model, uh, which is one of those things that emerged from the Cullen Inquiry, which was the idea of, of money pouring in from overseas, being laundered through sort of money changing here uh, into casinos where it was sort of washed, it came out the other side, and just the impact that that had on all sorts of different things, whether it be the price of real estate, uh, whether it be you know, there was even even luxury vehicles. I mean, that money was then kind of being poured into the economy uh, in ways that that uh, that very much uh, oversized, or was it, it was an outsized contribution of money that would come in, and quite corrosive as well, of course, because um, this money has ties to all kinds of people who are doing nefarious things in different parts of the world. Um, it's very tough. It is can be tough to crack down on, but the it's always been a bit of a mystery as to why Canada a has become so vulnerable to this, and B, why Canada seems to have so much difficulty in pushing back. Again, as I mentioned, Jamie Farrell spent eight years with the Canada Border Services Agency. She's now a financial crime instructor with the uh, Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security at Charles Stewart University in Canberra, and she joins me now. Jamie, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me on. This is a really, I mean, this is a very vast book and it's hard to sort of go over everything that's covered in it. Um, but just perhaps your motivation for putting it all down and getting all these authors together to talk about this specific subject. I was talking about the Cullen Inquiry uh, before you came on and just what an impact that had uh, specifically here in BC, but right across the country as sort of opening people's eyes to what kind of the scale and scope of this problem in this country. Yeah, well, I have to give credit where credit's due. It's actually Professor Christian Leprecht and the late Professor Art Cofield that initially put this volume together and came up with the idea for it. And they invited me on as a co-editor on it. And unfortunately, um, Professor Cofield passed away in, during the process, but we really wanted to put this together to change how people think about financial crime in the country. It has such dire impacts on so many facets of the country and society and our health and prosperity. So to really demonstrate that in a very digestible book was really the, the aim of this project. Is your sense that Canadians in general either don't pay attention to this or think of it as somewhat of a victimless crime to some extent? I think it's often thought as a victimless crime because it's not really in your face. You don't see, you know, if it's a, a gang shooting or a drug problem or a terrorist attack, those are very obviously linked to those specific crimes. But what is more under the covers really, or a bit more opaque, is the fact that these are all linked to financial crime, our drug epidemic gang behaviors, illegal imports of different commodities, whether it's wildlife or, again, drugs, that all links back to financial crimes. And our, our main focus here is on money laundering. Yeah, tell me how that works, because clearly the, pur the purpose of all of that, all that you've discussed, in fact, the purpose of all illegal activity to some extent is profit. And that profit has to be paid out and cashed in somehow. 
Exactly. So crime generates money. That's why criminals operate. But if they just go out and spend the fruits of their labor, so if there's a, say, a $5 million drug importation, they can't just spend that because then that creates this direct link between the crime, the criminal, and the money. It makes it pretty easy to catch them. And they know that. Criminals are agile. The good ones are not dumb. They're not getting caught. So they find these elaborate, really complex ways to obfuscate or really make that process complex and make it really difficult to track down where the money came from and what those predicate crimes were. You mentioned in the book that Canada is a preferred destination for this sort of stuff. Why is that? I mean, beyond its its proximity to the U.S., uh, why has it become uh, sort of the preferred destination for for the to launder ill gotten gains? Well, criminals again, the the good ones that aren't getting caught, they know how to exploit weaknesses and. Canada has a lot of weaknesses in its financial crime regime. There are so many different agencies that have a financial crime and money laundering mandate, but it's not streamlined and there just aren't the resources and the capabilities tackling this problem that need to be there. We need to have that political will to actually start putting the appropriate resources into tackling it. So from the criminal's perspective, they see a, a potentially see a weak link. So obviously it makes sense for them to exploit it. On the other side of, of, of the coin, uh, I don't imagine that law enforcement or you know, are, are unaware of this. Uh, what, what is the issue? Is it re- you mentioned, is it resourcing? Is it, is it coordination? Is it all of the above? All of the above. There's resourcing is, I'd say, probably the biggest problem because it hasn't been taken seriously by the government for so long. That means that our government agencies, our federal police included in that, haven't had that mandate for a long time. And while I, I don't want to you know, downplay, there are a lot of good police officers, a lot of good investigators, financial crime investigators that want to look into this, that want to do a good job and want to tackle it because they know what the consequences are. But unfortunately, our agencies and our organizations that are meant to tackle it, they do not have the resources or even the mandate, arguably, to really go after it. So they need the people, they need the expertise and the training. It's an extremely difficult crime to tackle, very complex. And they need that government buy-in to actually have the mandate supported. And yet, if, it, if you refer to Canada as a preferred destination, it suggests that other countries are doing a better job of, of keeping this, not maybe not at bay, but at least cracking down on it to some extent that would make Canada a more attractive place to do this kind of business than, say, the U.S. or parts of Europe. Yeah, I don't think anybody has gotten it completely right yet. I mean, all governments really benefit essentially from dirty money. I mean, there's a chapter in our book by Sana Ahmed. She's an assistant professor at the University of Calgary in law that talks about how governments actually have a vested interest in some dirty money, essentially propping up the economy in some senses. So I'm not sure that there would be any government in the world that would want to completely stamp it out, to be very honest. 
But there are countries that have made big moves to actually hold organized crime, kleptocrats, corporations that have been violating their own anti-money laundering regulations and legislation to account. And that is really important because when the government is behind it, that means that citizens are behind it and there's more awareness in communities and we know what to look for and what to help stamp out. It's not it's not just down to one person or one organization or one government to tackle. Daily Farrell is with us this half hour. She is a financial crime instructor with the Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security at Charles Stewart University in Canberra and is the co-editor of a new book out uh, alongside Christian Luprecht called Dirty Money, Financial Crime in Canada. We've been talking about the scope of the problem, uh, which is quite large in this country and why that is, um, and a bit about the impact as well. Uh, I suppose, Jamie, if you look at it, maybe the way to impress the scale of the problem on people is to really describe what the impact is. Because off the top, we were talking about how often the perception of things like money laundering is that it's somewhat of a victimless crime. But this book really does, through the chapters in this book, you really do look a bit at the at the impact that it's having. And it, it, some of the scale of it was, was even, I, I mean, I, I cover this quite often, uh, I found quite surprising, to be honest. Yeah, and there's a number of really kind of key examples to drive the point home. And you only need to walk down the streets of downtown Toronto or Calgary even, or Vancouver or at Ottawa on the Byward Market to see what the drug epidemic has done with synthetic opioids and fentanyl. That importation of drugs and the selling of those drugs, that is all creating a profit for someone. That person has to clean that money somehow so that they can actually use it out in the normal economy. So if we just look at that one example, because it just looks like, oh, it's just a drug problem, it's a homeless problem. Well, no, it's actually linked to bigger organized crime issues and bigger money laundering issues. Or if we look at the housing markets in specifically Vancouver, which was the key focus of the Cullen Commission out in British Columbia that looked at specifically money laundering, it's extremely inflated. And we know there is a lot of dirty money sloshing around in the real estate market out West, especially, and driving up the cost of real estate, pricing normal Canadians out of homes. There's already a cost of living crisis. This is adding to it. Or if we look at, um, take Russia's invasion of Ukraine, those kleptocrats and people with the ultra rich, they are offshoring their money often through Canadian banks or shell companies that are registered in Canada. So it has really wide reaching effects and does have a lot of victims. It's absolutely not a victimless crime. Follow the money always uh, is sort of one of the the keys, the keys when it comes to investigative stuff Uh, to start to begin to turn the tide here, because it feels like a pretty tall order. Um, given the circumstances Canada finds itself in right now, where do you begin? Where do you begin to turn this around, do you think? Well, first, the government really needs to support an approach that's commensurate with the risk and what the actual threats of financial crime are. So right now, and I'll I'll steal this quote from from Christian saying that the financial crime regime in Canada, it works pretty well 
for the criminals and the ultra rich. We need to turn that around. We need to start creating or passing legislation and regulations that will actually support law enforcement in their endeavors. There needs to be intelligent sharing processes that lead to more efficient dissemination. Our reporting entities, so our banks, financial institutions, casinos, and so on, they need to be able to assess the quality of their suspicious transaction reports, which they really currently can't because there's a lack of feedback from our regulator. And we need to look at streamlining the process and creating a more collaborative and holistic approach to tackling this. No one agency or government can do it alone. Because I get the sense there's been a lot of rules put into place. There's a lot of paperwork going on. I just don't know. It, clearly, it has, it's not working. Well, exactly. And there's been a lot of talk and no real action. And we saw that with the fall economic statement. The government promised that they would address this new financial crime agency in the statement, and they didn't. They failed to meet their own deadline on it. So there's a lot of words, but we're not really seeing results. Do you get the sense that, that I mean, I, I get the feeling that after the Cullen Commission with what went on with the so-called Vancouver model and so on, that there has been an awakening to this. And there, But I, I don't feel like there's been a lot of, it certainly doesn't feel like it's front and center for politicians of any stripe, who, by the way, politicians of all stripes have overseen the governments that have allowed this to happen for so long without repercussion. Oh, exactly. I mean, is it an issue that's going to get them reelected? Probably not. But is it an issue that we really need to look at the, the social consciousness behind it? Absolutely. So there's a, a bit of a dichotomy there. And how do you balance something that a politician would could get on board with and something that they really need to do for the benefit of society? And that is the point. I mean, our government should be addressing these really significant crimes that impact all Canadians. But again, it's just there has been a lack of action on it. Yeah, certainly the Cullen Commission provided a bit of a template. I know the government of BC has been sort of beginning to act on it, but certainly the Cullen Commission provided a bit of a template about how to get this done as well. So it's not like we have to start from scratch here. Exactly. There were 101 recommendations made. It was an 1800 page report, over 1800 pages. So there isn't a lack of guidance there. There were some really, really important findings that came out of that commission. But now we need to see those implemented and we need to see those recommendations actually put in place. Well, Jamie, I suggest people should just pick up the book and try and have a read. It's 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 what four hundred seventy some odd pages. It's very thorough. It's very thorough. But congratulations on it, and thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. Going to be a couple of interviews today, Ben. We want to make sure that we both find the right fit. Business as usual is not really our motto, so we hope you have some fun here. This is the first time we're hiring senior interns, so some of our intern questions may not exactly fit your profile, but we're gonna go for it anyway, okay? Fire away. Where'd you go to school? I went to Northwestern. Hey, my brother went to Northwestern. Probably not at the same time. Probably not, he graduated in 2009. Class of 65. <laughs> wow, what was your major? Do you remember? 
I don't know if you've seen that movie, The Intern. It's actually a pretty good movie. Robert De Niro's in it with uh, who you just heard alongside Anne Hathaway. Uh, the motto of the film, of course, was experience never gets old. De Niro plays a 70-year-old widower and retiree named Ben Whitaker. Uh, Ben's tried everything in retirement uh, from yoga to learning Mandarin and so on. It decides, listen, he's going to go try to work again. So he applies uh, for this new program at this company for senior interns. Uh, it's an online fashion site run by Hathaway's character, uh, Jules Austin. So of course he comes in. You could probably guess where it goes from here. I'm not going to give it away. It's a pretty decent movie to watch, by the way. Uh, it's entertaining enough. You know, I won't give away the plot, but if you think that the young uns first think of it's all of a bit of a joke, then come to realize how valuable that life and work experience really is, then you'd be absolutely right. But fiction in America is increasingly becoming fact. In North America, as a matter of fact, a new Pew Research study um, finds that one in five people over the age of 65 are still working in the U.S. That's a twofold jump from the 1980s. It translates into about 11 million uh, senior citizens or people over 65 who remain in the workforce, which by sheer numbers is quadruple the figure in the mid-1980s, just by sheer numbers. Uh, but the percentage, of course, is, is higher. And it's a trend that's expected to continue with Americans over 65 projected to be one of the few demographic groups with rising labor force participation over the next decade, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S. Now, the reasons are varied. Some of them, like Ben Whitaker, for instance, clearly just personal. Uh, but others, you know, there is the need to continue to earn a living. Um, you know, there's, it's partly systemic as well. Pensions aren't what they used to be. Uh, people aren't saving what they used to be. Divorce rates make it different in terms of how much money you can actually save over the course of a lifetime. A lot of things come into play. Uh, to make needing to work or wanting to work possible. Also, companies are opening up to older employees in a tighter labor market these days. Um, joining me now is Richard Fry. He's a senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. He did the work on this particular study. Richard, thanks so much for your time tonight. You are very welcome. Good to be with you. This is always a really interesting uh, phenomenon because we hear a lot about ageism in the workforce, obviously, but we're also seeing a growing number of older people either staying in the workforce or re-entering the workforce. What did you find? Well, the um, contribution of older workers in America is growing. Uh, we've got more older adults. A greater share of them are employed. When they're working, they work longer hours. And relative to their younger counterparts, they're actually getting paid um, quite a bit more. So that age-wage gap has narrowed. Um, so you put it all together, and the contribution of older adults to the American workforce has basically tripled since 1987. That's an amazing stat. I mean, I, I was reading, according to your research, of course, that 75 and up was the fastest growing group in the workforce. Yeah. Now, that that is actually measuring back to the 1960s. Right. But yeah, 75 and older, which is we don't spend a lot of time on the 75 and older. But yeah, the number of workers 75 and older is basically quadrupled since the 1960s. And that's more than any other age group. I'm old enough to remember sort of ads for Freedom 55 and so on. I guess, I guess there are a lot of different factors at play here. Uh, some of them are voluntary and some of them are not, right? Yeah. So just to, to sort of put some numbers on it, back in 87, that was sort of the, the bottoming out of older adults' um, employment in the U.S. Uh, back in 87, only 11% of older American adults were employed. Now, as of 2023, it's about one in five, 19%. So it's basically doubled. And the question is, is well, so what's going on here? What are the factors? Why do more um, older adults choose to work or have to work? And there's several, a variety of things. Number one, 
older adults are much better educated than they used to be. Uh, generally, employment rates, job holding rises with education. Another factor is that older Americans are also healthier. There's fewer cognitive impairments, fewer disability. That was the case back in the 80s, so they're healthier. There's also been some policy changes. Um, the last major reform of Social Security in the U.S. was in the mid-1980s, and one of the key things that that commission and Congress did was raise the retirement age at which you could get full Social Security benefits. They raised it from 65 to 67. So that basically making Social Security a bit less generous, so to speak, um, has incentivized older Americans to stay in a bit longer. Another sort of major change in the retirement landscape is there used to be old style pensions. Right. We call them defined benefits. Um, and now many more older adults have what, you know, what in America is called 401k, defined contribution plans. Those sort of old style pensions they incentivized workers to leave the workforce early. You had to leave your employer at, say, 62. Very few older adults have those old-style traditional pensions anymore. And so that sort of incentive to retire early has been withdrawn. And then sort of the last thing I'll mention, which is kind of a, a new piece of research, is this business about the age-friendliness of jobs. In when you talk to older adults and you sort of say, well, what, what job characteristics are important to you? And they basically say, I don't want to do strenuous work. I want to be able to set my own schedule, flexibility. The other thing is that I kind of like to work independently, autonomously. And there's evidence that American jobs have indeed shifted in that direction. So more older adults may be willing to work because they find jobs um, a little bit more preferable, a little bit um, more... Uh, advantageous to them and their preferences than was the case, you know, three, four decades ago. So a variety of things are contributing to more U.S. adults choosing to work at 65 and older. I would imagine the move towards more remote work would probably accelerate that as well because it gives, uh, you know, take out the commute and it makes it even more attractive. Yes, I imagine that is. I haven't actually looked at the connection with remote work and how 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 much older adults sort of value that. Um, but that's probably, I agree with you, probably a, another positive as well. Are you seeing it right across the spectrum? Because, you know, I think of, uh, you know, obviously we have older folks working as greeters at Walmart, but you also have older folks who continue on as sort of doing part-time legal work and so on, or continue in their, in their old profession. Some would just go out and find something altogether different. Are you seeing it right across the spectrum in terms of this growth in the number of uh, older people at work? Yeah. So a lot of these um, 65 and plus workers, um, they're less likely to be working full time than the younger counterparts. But you're right. There is this phenomenon of what we call here in the U.S. We call them bridge jobs. Mm -hmm. Some older adults, they may want to slow down a bit. Um, and so they um, basically go maybe from full time to part time. Maybe they can do it with the same employer. Oftentimes, though, you're right. They'll switch careers and do something um, completely new. And so they're basically sort of rather than starkly just, you know, going from work totally to retirement, no work, they bridge the transition, a phase transition. And that's a, that we see that as well. Yeah. Employers are making it easier as well. I think perhaps recognizing the value of having, having experienced workers do uh, work at the, on their own terms to some extent as well. Yeah, I think it, it, in the U.S., and I think Canada is probably the same way, 
Um, the last two or three years, particularly, the labor market has been pretty tight. It's been an ad advantageous um, environment for workers, and in, many employers have struggled to um, to find. You know, there's been labor shortages. Employers are are wanting to keep and retain. Um, their talent. And so I think you're right that they're probably coming up with ways, constructing packages and work alternatives and arrangements that um, keep their talented employees on board, including their older ones. Does it create any kind of, uh, I mean, you know, talking about the boomers again, right? My parents are boomers, obviously. I knew they would never retire, uh, but it, does it create, it, it, I guess it doesn't create a log jam in the workforce. That's always sort of, you know, are there any negative side effects to this? Um, well, I think, we can talk about whether it's good for society, but as far as for the older adults themselves, some of them are doing it voluntarily, but some of them are continuing to work because they have to. They're simply mm. not prepared to um, retire and, um, um, you know, sort of to retire and not work. They don't have the finances for it. So in some sense, this is voluntary. In other cases, it's involuntary. They prefer to retire, but they're not financially ready for it. So I think for the older adults themselves, is this a good thing or a bad thing is a very, very complicated question. But I kind of agree with you. As far as the younger generation, as far as society as a whole, the fact that older Americans are staying in the workforce, I think it's probably a good thing. Um, I can point to two things. In terms of the nation's finances, it's a good thing. They continue to pay taxes, payroll taxes. If they delay taking Social Security, they delay sort of collecting the benefits. And so from a financial standpoint of the nation's finances, it's a good thing that older Americans are, are continuing to work. And then I'll just mention again from an economic standpoint, um, economic growth, one of the key things is labor force growth. Uh, at least in the U.S., our labor force isn't growing anything like it once was. And um, the older Americans are making a significant contribution to labor force growth. I'll just put some numbers on that. Um, we here at the Pew Research Center, we don't do projections. But the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics does. And they went from 2022 to 2032. The labor force is going to grow. About 55% of the growth in the labor force is going to be due to labor force participants 65 and older. Wow, that's so a huge number. Yeah, it's, it's a huge contribution. So labor force growth, according to BLS, is really coming from two places um, over the next decade. Um, immigrants, foreign born, their contribution and then, again, a large group of older Americans who are increasingly likely to work, and they are making a major contribution to labor force growth. Richard Fry is with the Pew Research Center. We're talking about some work he's done on older Americans staying in the workforce. There's been a big jump since the 1980s, up to about 19%, so a twofold increase. One in five uh, Americans over 65 still working in some way, shape, or form. Um, I, I was interested, uh, Richard, in, in seeing that they're also happier at work, and I thought that was uh, there was something really uh, well, nicely ironic about that. Yeah, so this is um, a separate survey that we did in um, – I believe 2022 on sort of looking at job satisfaction and, um, you know, surveyed adult employed adults and sort of looked at sort of a variety of sort of concerns about sort of their happiness, their satisfaction on various aspects of the workplace. And one of the basic demographic findings we found is that um, older workers tend to be significantly more happy job, higher job satisfaction than their younger counterparts. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't, I can't really elaborate on it exactly, you know, sort of why that, why that is. 
um, in terms of sort of, you know, why they're happier, but they are. Uh, a bit of, I guess it's a bit of a chicken and, and egg argument. Are people who like their work, do people who like their work stay and work longer, right? I mean, that could be that could be part of it as well, which would be sort of an, an, a logical explanation. But there may well be a period of time where uh, as you get older, you actually just, you, you find work more pleasurable, which is an interesting irony because we always think about as we're coming through the workforce, we always sort of think about retirement and what it may look like. Uh, but I imagine a lot of people miss work when they leave. Yeah, I think there is a, uh, I'm not, again, I'm an economist by training, not a psychologist, but um, I do think there's probably a general consensus that, yeah, for people who are working, that they derive a lot of, you know, a lot of satisfaction from it. Um, I think for some older adults, maybe it's, you know, a really important source of of meaning and identity um, in their lives. So you're, you're right. When, when you look at uh, going forward as well, if it is going to be one of the fastest growing labor segments or fastest growing segments of the U.S. labor market, you would assume then that there will be some competition out there for older workers as well, which is not something I think that a whole lot of organizations have thought much about in the past. When you look at these um, older workers, one of the findings that I was sort of really surprised with is in America, we generally have this idea that... Um, that younger generations tend to be better educated than older generations. You know, mm-hmm. more of, more with the successive generations, more of them go on to college and complete college. Now, it's partly what, what I'm going to say here is part of the reflection of who chooses to stay in the labor force versus who leaves. But one of the findings that our report that I was really surprised with is that when you look at sort of younger workers, 25 to 64, about 45 percent of them have at least a bachelor's degree. And what really surprised me is that as of 2023, when we look at our older workers, 44% of them have at least a bachelor's degree. So our older workers are not any less educated, at least in terms of formal educate formal educational attainment, than younger workers. I did not expect to see that. Now that's again, it's partly who's choosing to stay in, but uh, our older workers are just as well educated um, and almost as well paid. As their younger counterparts, right? A reflection, I imagine, too, of, of demand in the labor market, right, for educated workers, so, so that that uh, that older workers. But that is that is because there's always been that. Um, I wouldn't call it a stereotype, but there has been that assumption out there that older workers are less educated. Again, back to the competition um, in this. Uh, again, it's I guess it's something that all organizations should be looking for: is how do you how do you attract if you need workers, how do you attract older ones? Yeah, and I, and again, I think. I think there is a, a growing literature, and we we talked about some of it. There are certain certain characteristics that um, older workers um, want. Um, again, physically strenuous work is not their cup of tea. They're very strong about that, but they want flexibility, they like autonomy, and um, to the extent that employers and we also mentioned you know bridge jobs as well. To the extent that employers can um, derive arrangements in which their older employees can maybe scale back the intensity of their effort um, and yet still contribute to their organization, um, I think that would be appealing to older adults to stay in. Yeah, interesting when we look at sort of productivity and so on and this idea that for so many well, for, for obvious reasons for a long time, but for, for, you know, for that this has been a bit of an untapped resource over the years. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's hard for me to sort of kind of weighing on sort of what the, the work environment and the HR environment, you know, sort of was, say, 20 years ago. Um, but um, I do think, again, given given labor shortages and the need for um, 
manpower and women power, um, I do think employers and HR departments are going to increasingly sort of think about what arrangements, what, you know, work schedule arrangements can we can we offer our um, older adults um, that would appeal to them and keep them in. Well, Richard, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Thank you.